0: Hello, and welcome to way Too twogs Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. Week's episode is a little bit different uh generally you know on the show i play through a bunch of 18th and 19th century tune settings on highland pipes or illin pipes or scottish small pipes or border pipes or whistles um but this week uh, i'm going to have an interview which I've, I've done before but this one isn't featuring me i'm i didn't do this interview uh, a couple geez months ago at this point i posted a photo of a mug that i made uh, for the podcast um, which I wasn't terribly displeased with it, but it wound up like trying to set up a red bubble store for it. It's, I mean, it's there, it's like $30 though. I'm trying to figure out a cheaper alternative. Anyway, I posted a photo of it cause I'm pretty happy with, with how it looked. And, um, a bunch of people commented that they didn't realize I had a podcast. And of those, a, uh, Instagram user, uh, Ilan Sean or Sean Lally got in touch with me and said he didn't know I had a podcast and he wondered if I wanted to play an episode that he had made. So uh, Sean had recorded an interview between himself and Brian Howard after Sean uh, went on um, the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. He, He wound up talking to Brian who made his pipes and then it's like, man, Brian's got so many good stories. We should put an episode of Blarney Pilgrims together. But by that point, Blarney Pilgrims had already quit, um, quit doing their podcast or pause doing their podcast. So that means, uh, Wager Twog's bag and History podcast gets to be the home of this lovely interview. So huge thanks to Brian Howard and Sean Lally for kind of having this chat, recording it and sharing it with all of us. Um, I'm not going to play any tunes on this episode. Um, I am going to include a couple tracks from a Finbar Fury album, which I suppose is technically a... Uh, Not just Vin Bar Fury album, but an album by uh, the Furies and Bob Stewart. Uh, Anyway, the track is going to be Tomorrow We Part, which we're going to kind of kick off the episode with. And then in the middle of the interview, I'll add in a track called Regulation. And right again at the end, we'll hear a little bit of La Volta. Uh, and then we're also going to finish up, because uh, obviously Brian Howard's an illin Pipe Maker and big into Low Whistles, which you know features quite a bit of discussion in the episode. Um, and Howard Whistles is still going strong, even though uh, Brian retired in 2017. I asked Stephen Dockery if he would play a couple tunes on his new uh, Howard Lodi Whistle, and he agreed, so we're going to go out with The Blarney Pilgrims and Joy of My Life. By Stephen Dockery. And I guess without further ado, let's listen to uh, Finbar and then go right into Sean and Brian Howard doing their interview.
1: Welcome to what well, I think yeah. I'm going to call the Rakish Paddies podcast. It is a one-off, I think, and it's very much in homage to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast, but without all of the good audio quality and that that those guys had, because Darren and Don were audio professionals. But I'm really thrilled to welcome Brian Howard to the show. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Hi. And for those of you that um, don't know, Brian was um, an Ellen pipe maker for many, many years, a low whistle maker for many, many years. And of course, a player of many instruments as well. And Brian, I'm uh, a student of the Ellen pipes. I'm still learning the Ellen pipes. And I've had the good fortune to always play a Howard set of pipes. I had a Howard practice set and now a Howard half set. And before I went on the Blarney Pilgrims podcast, I phoned you to talk about some of your pipe making history and some of the pipers that I met at various Tinol with you. And the stories were so fantastic that, in fact, Darren and Dom had you lined up to speak, but then they've stopped doing their podcast because life takes over. So what I really wanted to do was to record some of these wonderful stories that you shared. So... What I want to do, I suppose, is firstly ask you how uh, an an engineer from Sheffield got into playing and making the Illum Pipes.
2: It's very difficult. Uh, I always had a leaning towards Irish music and um, things like that. And I couldn't work out why. But um, in her wisdom, my mum sent me to a Catholic school and now I recall that lots of the surnames began with O.
1: So you were in in the uh, the culture with a lot of Irish um, people in Sheffield that had come over to Sheffield in the fifties and sixties. Is that right?
2: There was uh, there was. Uh, there was stories we heard where people left in the famine years um, and went to England. And there was one family that uh, was going to Manchester and uh, the, the part of the family got lost and ended up in Sheffield. <laughs> and it was years and years later that they, that they met up again, you know. Um, they, the music side of things if there was a, a parish kind of evening of music there were people oh, singing Slattery's Mounted Foot and uh, all these songs um, and the music kind of flowed from that and then I I was a, an apprentice, uh, toolmaker, uh, learning all the skills that I would use later on uh, when I was making pipes. And uh, they're I'm losing the track a bit, but um, I got into music uh and playing guitar and things like that. And eventually I heard the pipes played by Finbar Fury when uh, Finbar and Eddie was uh, in, in Coventry and in Daventry, I think. And they, um, I was blown away with the sound of the pipes, you know. And uh, Finbar came back from... I'd done this gig and he came back and we were talking into the night you know and then um, I was lecturing in mechanical engineering and the kids used to kid me about my music and I used to kid them about this you know and one of the lads I just said oh I heard Irish Pipes live for the first time last night and he said my dad's got a set <laughs> So I said, do you mean that? He says, yeah. I said, well, can you ask him if I could meet him? And I've looked. And he says, I'll ask him. And he came back and and I said, well, what did he say? He says he'd like to meet a lecturer who actually knew what Irish pipes were. So from that, I found, I piled up with a guy called, his father was called uh, Tom O'Rourke. He sadly passed away a few years ago, but uh, I helped him set a little lathe up to do Scottish practice chanters and things like that. And we we had some great times. And he taught me bits about reed making, and Fimba Fuiri taught, taught me more. And we'd get together and I'd say do you think it would be better like this and he'd say oh no and then a week later he'd come back suggesting this, that I should do them like the way that I'd told him and just to try it out <laughs> and um, I made one or two in- innovations because this was based, oh, 1976 um, and uh, we uh, I had a um, my, my, a my battery's just run out in the hearing aid. I'm not as uh, sound of hearing as I used to be,
1: of course. And it's worth uh, saying uh, while Brian's sorting that, that I had the great fortune, um to meet Tom O'Rourke at hall in Birmingham. And he told me some fantastic stories. And one of the ones that he told me was that he grew up in a, a house full of Highland Pipers or war, Irish war pipers. I can't remember how he described it, but the big loud ones you play outside. And he was an Illan Piper. And Tom said that his father was incredibly strict musically and especially about rhythm. He was really big on the rhythm. And Tom said that there was one evening where they were sat around the radio listening to music. And what would happen is if anyone on the radio played at a time, Tom's father would smash the radio with his, his stick. <laughs> He'd smash it off with his stick. And it was called getting the knock. <laughs> and Tom, Tom O'Rourke said to me at the tin hall, he said, one day... One of his brothers came up to him gleefully. He said, one of your lot got the knock last night, you know. And he said, who was that? He goes, Willie Clancy. He was playing and father gave him the knock. I didn't tell it quite, as Tom O'Rourke said, but it it was uh, certainly amusing.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, we, certainly, when we went to live over in Ireland, there was a whole crowd of us moved over. Finbar and Eddie was... Just forming a group called Tamlin, that that became the Fury Brothers and Davy Arthur. Um, a name change, and more people in, and then George joined, and they were. Um, we, I, Finbar, had to play in a four forty, and his pipes that he got were an early Kennedy set. And they were sharp pitch, and he ordered a set. I'm not who from, uh, but when he went to collect them, he found that it sold them to another group, and it flown over from Germany to collect these pipes so that he could be playing in the same pitch as Paul's accordion. And uh, subsequently, I got a phone call from Finbar's wife to say, go and buy the Blackwood and start making a set because I need one desperately and I'll borrow a set of pipes for you to copy. And six weeks later with Finbar back in the country, I had finished that uh, pipes apart from a chanter because he'd got a chanter he was in love with and didn't want to a new one so I made drones and regulators for them and uh, it came back it took them away and it came back with reeds in and I couldn't believe what I'd created and I think that's the set that is still playing today I think various bits were done on it I don't know Uh, keeping it going, you know. But that was in 1976... Um, so that, that was my introduction to living in Ireland because we moved over at the same time as Finbar, packed my job in because uh, um, Sean Cannon was at one of the numerous goodbye do's and he said to me, when are you going to make pipes full time because it's what's needed sort of thing, you know. And I said, well, it's got to be now. And uh, my wife said, do you really want to go? I said, well, you know, there was, i had been teach, uh, lecturing because my apprenticeship meant that I could and the qualifications I got were above degree level at the end. And um, we, we moved over to... A place called Woodstown on the southeast coast, and uh, the rest, you know, I just made pipes there. Then we got uh, bought a cottage and fitted a workshop out, and, and spent the time making pipes. But the, at that time, the about we were there for about six, seven years, I think. And uh, the economy went mad. You know, it was crazy. I know it was bad in the UK at the time, but it was, you know, the knock-on effect from that to Ireland was worse. And my wife was very ill. And I, you know, I think we were trying to get a a living when things were very difficult. So we decided to move back to the UK. I went back doing some lecturing um, and uh, concentrated on getting the pipes done. And I'd also made some whistles while I was in Ireland. And oh, I said that. I'd engineer one properly. Yeah. It was an injection moulding machines that I bought. Um, and, in Sheffield you can get no end of things done there's skills all over the place and this guy says well I'll do I'll make you the mold and uh, be, pay me a deposit and then as you sell them <laughs> you can pay me and I paid him off reasonably quickly but that's the kind of thing that happens in the city and people would trust you to get something going if they you know and uh, so river dance happened at the same sort of period and uh we put these low whistles on the market and they did very well
1: well i'll and tell you what brian can we just rewind a bit before we get into into that story because I was really um, interested in your early pipe making days in Ireland because you'd done this set for Finbar. And, you know, when I spoke to Darren from Blarney Pilgrims, he said, well, when you learn pipes, you need a guru, you need a, a pipe shaman, a reed shaman to show you. But making them, did you have any mentors or people who helped you understand this beast that is the Ellen Pipes to help develop your pipe making while you were over in uh, Southeast East Thailand?
2: Well, my engineering background, you know, if somebody has made something, somebody can copy it. And this is the way I approached it. I'm, I could measure things very, very accurately. I could make tools to do jobs that perhaps other pipe makers couldn't, that and the accuracy point was, um, you know, when uh, another f- friend who helped me a lot was uh, uh, Francis Mike Peak, You know, Frank. from Belfast. Yeah, yeah, and he he used to come over with the band, and he got uh, relatives. In Leicester, I think that were quite c- close to where we were live in, Market Harbour, and uh, he came round and he showed me the reeds for the first time how they, you know, worked. And young Fra- young Francis, as he was then, um, he came to see us um, when when they were on tour, and. Um, I said, have a go on this. This is one I've made, you know. And, well, he stayed with us for a week, and I took his chanter down to my little workshop and uh, copied it. And when I'd done it, he, he put his reading, and it worked. And it worked quite well. And, what, and who had made um,
1: Francis Smith's Pete's chanter that you copied, Brian? Sorry? <laughs> uh, what make was that chanter?
2: It was a Kennedy from Cork.
1: So, right. Was that the first chanter that you'd made?
2: Yes, because... Uh, but, again, it was sharp, sharp pitch, I think. But I started... You know... I'm trying to put things in sequence. We used to see Finbar quite often because he didn't live too far away. Um, Tom O'Rourke, we used to spend the evenings talking. Um, and it's how I got my background education of, you know, uh, finding out, oh, all children had got names and some had got, Several names and you know uh, and because all, all the music I'd played was singing with the guitar, you know with just records. And uh, learning learning to play by ear was was very, you know one of the things that I could do. I could pick pick tunes up on this first chanter. That I made, and then, but it all sort of happened so quickly. When I um, made Finbar's pipes, and uh, th- there was a guy called uh, Louis Rousseau who was um, a musician that I met, and he was staying with me, and he he was. A noble maker. Um, so he, he'd done um, a lot of work for Boosey and Hawks um, on key work and stuff like this. So um, we, we used to, have, again, we'd talk far too long into the night <laughs> about stuff, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I looked at the pipes And I looked at engineering when pipes were being developed. And as orchestral music went from instruments with keys that were in wooden slots that on the outside of the instrument to become far more sophisticated engineering-wise. And unfortunately that coincided with the famine in Ireland, when engineering was getting better, there was a big drop-off in pipe making and it it kind of stuck the pipes underdeveloped acoustically, shall we say, Um, and one of the things that I started to do was look at how the octaves are tuned in the chanter, and lots of chanters certain notes are flat and the other ones are sharp between the two octaves and once i got back to the uk i started looking at how we could improve chanter bars to make them people called them wobbly bars, you know because it it wasn't a true taper in in orchestral instruments, it's not a true taper either because they've got these bore perturbations, you know, where the bore changes handle and and uh, uh, puts puts a little hollow in certain places. Um, that that made the the the, ch- the chanters play much better in tune, and also got a kind of kink out of the Pressure thing because you get up to an A and then have to squeeze harder to do it. With all the things I did, it just sailed up past that pressure point and you could go right up to a third D. And I continued trying things um, to see if I could make them better still, you know. And eventually I started putting perturbations into the, the staple to make that play better and i mean first of all i tried between the thumb hole and the bottom of the chanter and i've got a lot better tuning and then i tried some between the thumb hole and the bottom of the staple and that made a big improvement as well it just made everything more solid and from that, I started metal spinning staples to put perturbations. And it occurred to me that the bore was fractal, it had got repeating patterns. Each octave, you went up the bore, you know. Um, and so they, the staple now is like a mini. The ball is like a mini bore in the chanter. I don't know whether that makes sense or not, but Yeah, absolutely.
1: So essentially the the ball, which is the inside of the chanter, it's different diameters at different points to make the sound waves do what you want for the chanter to play in tune and for it to be, yeah. you know, relatively easy to play. And the inside of the staple, the metal part of the reed, is replicating that like a fractal is what yeah. you're saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I I used to visit Ireland uh, in the 90s, you know, and uh, Killian O'Brien, when I was in Kilmacow making pipes in South Kilkenny, he worked for me for two years. And I was over visiting... Um he says, we were talking about these perturbations and where are they? So I said, well, I'm going home, you know, kind of tomorrow. Um, but I've got my chanter with me and I don't mind doing an experiment on my chanter because I'll not need it. can, can always make another one of them when I'm back home. So what happened was... He uh, sort of, we couldn't get the E in tune in between the two octaves. No, sorry, the B note we were trying to get better. And one of the things I didn't realise is that if the B note slightly flat in the kind of Pythagorean tuning system, it's okay. It, go- it goes with drones better and things like that. And that's a whole big subject that we could spend ages talking about but what I did, I just ground it on a hand grinder, this piece of silver steel, made a reamer reamed my own chanter underneath the bean hole and we put the reed in to see what happened and I says, no, no it's it's still it's still, you know flat and that's killing us as yeah but the e-notes come better in tune so and it had and uh, it so, so so, it's an unex- unexpected result unexpected result but um i train myself to accept these things if if the research i've done says this is the way things are that's that's what you build on. So, um, when I got back to the UK, um, we had a mighty session in a pub in Derbyshire, a lock in type place, you know. And there was a recorder maker there playing a recorder beautifully. Um, and I said, That's nice. And he says, Yes, I'll make them. And I said, Well, I'll make the pipes. And he said, wow, you know. So, we had a good chat. And he invited me to come down. And I said, I'm having trouble with the B note, getting the two Bs in tune in between the octaves. I said, if you've got that on a recorder, where would you take a little bit out of the bow? And he says, here. I said, but that's miles away from the E note. He says, yeah, no. So I tried that as well. And that set me on getting perturbations to work, you know. And uh, I think it's one of the things that uh, successes I had with people like yourself have got chanters that are quite well in tune, you know. Well, I've had
1: my chanter since 1999, I believe is when I got my chanter from you. And, of course, I'm... Still learning with lots and lots of ways to go. I often joke that learning tradition, traditional Irish music as an adult Englishman is like, a, a you know, an ever moving puzzle that you try to solve. But I love it. So I'll keep doing it. But it does just play, you know. So obviously it's not magic. I go traveling, you know, around the world and uh, or around the country. And there can be read issues that you've got to wait for it to settle. But I remember I read an article once that said, well, pipers spend half their time trying to make the pipes work and half the time practising, and that's not been my experience, luckily. Um, one of the things I was really interested in um, to find out more about was that you were very close to Tommy Carney, uh, the piper from Waterford when you when you were in Ireland, weren't you? Oh,
2: the gentleman. <laughs> it was lovely. Um, he He taught me some piping um, and strangely when Tommy died uh, usually if somebody dies in Ireland and you're in England you can't get to their f- the funeral because you know you've got to do to this but uh, Tommy didn't do that he wanted to be cremated and there was a, a waiting list <laughs> So I had time to get over to the funeral, you know, and uh, I'd seen him about six months before and we'd had a couple of tunes together. I think he had Alzheimer's and, um, you know, I knocked on the door and prepared for him not to recognise me, as I'd been told might happen. And I opened the do- he opened the door and he says, Brian, have you got the pipes? <laughs> and, Brilliant. Yeah, pull, more or less pulled me in. But one of the things at the funeral, afterwards we had a session, you know, uh, to wake. And um, there was about four pipers that had all been taught by Tommy, including me, you know. And we... We just played the tunes the way Tommy did. It was amazing. It was real, really, you know, really nice. But, and, uh, and who were the other
1: Pipers have... round that part of Ireland in the 70s, Brian? Sorry? Who were the other Pipers around that part of Ireland when you were living there?
2: Oh, oh, just a moment. My memory's going as well, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to Tommy Keane. Who I've yep. seen, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Who I saw last year in Spain, that's quite accidentally. Um, oh, gee, come and think. Oh,
1: well, we can always come back to that. I think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that, um, I said, I said we'd come back to, let's do that now, is the development of the low whistle, which again is famously you know, involves people like Finbar Fury and Paddy Keenan yeah. and, and such. Um, the stories of Finbar and Paddy making uh, low whistles out of uh, TV aerials and such like that, you know, b- back in their youth in Dublin. So where did the, the low whistle
2: come from? Well, Finbar had a silver whistle that got lost or stolen, you know, and... He went to an, an engineer who was a welder on the side, Bernard Overton, and uh, Bernard made him one in aluminium, you know. And at the time, I'd got uh, tubing for the pipes, and I, I made one in, um, in brass, Um, I made several by building the fipple and the, you know, into the brass with a plug that was, you know. And also, years ago, when I was doing research, I came across something that said, um, if you do this and this and this with the... um, wind it will play quietly and loudly and the pitch will not change and you've got a whistle that does that i think yeah i have i've got my howard low whistle yeah yeah so what what i did was make a a a, a whistle mold together with some well, people were, I could, uh, in Sheffield, I could get people to do work for me to, to get this thing going. And uh, also there was a, a, a grant for people who were setting up, and this was when I was just back in the UK. You could get workshops, three months free, and then you, the rent went up to full things over a year. And I made all the bits and got people uh, to spark a road that shape a copper shape of a whistle head into steel. This is a bit technical. What they do is submerge it in paraffin and it's very accurately positioned so that when electricity goes through it, it sparks and it vaporises a little bit of the steel. And eventually, I had to make two whistle heads in copper. One was about one millimetre smaller than the other, and that one roughed out the shape, half the shape of a whistle head, and then they put it on another side of the block and did the same at the other side. And I... I tried to get the I designed the head in such a way that where I wanted some um, perturbations in the wind way, it was thicker, so it shrunk away and left a little hollowing uh, as that research thing had told me happened with good quality recorders. So It was a bit of (laughs) luck that I guessed right uh, with the thickness of the uh, head in these places, so it shrunk away and left uh, perturbations in the (laughs) windway. Does that
1: follow? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, the low whistle, obviously, has become one of the... You know, very popular instruments in traditional yep. music. So, were you one of the very first people making them?
2: Yeah, um, I made them. Um, I did all this tool making in 1984, right? For the, I did a whistle with a plastic head, uh, and some PTFE tape on between that and the brass whistle. Um, so that you could tune with the head, you know, which was a good idea. Um, You know, um, but Bernard Overton had done these, his sort of making was when up to 1976, for me knowing him. So that was the time... Finbar and all of us moved over to Ireland, right? I carried on hand making whistles until I came back to the UK in '84. And then I, the ones that I've been making and selling as handmade ones, that's when I did and got myself an injection moulding machine, which is a story in itself. <laughs> um, because I got this machine reasonably priced and set it up and found out how to use it and uh, made the the whistled uh, heads just in time for Riverdance to make make them popular with Davy Spillarm playing on Riverdance, you know. So that was a good idea. And it, it meant that I got a product I could sell that I could reproduce quite well. Um, and, uh, I mean, at the same time, we set up doing some bar runs as well, which was hoping to play me get back into pipe making because I did them for a distributor. And uh, I found a way of putting the skin on with some... Very small staples um, in a groove, and the skin. You know, people say, "Oh, the skin stretched." You know, and and but it wasn't. It was the the skin was shrinking and pulling a little tear in. On and barons were unplayable after a couple of years. You know, but I was uh, in Ireland last year. Um, and there was my granddaughter was just born, uh, and uh, N- Nikki, we we couldn't go and see her after that because the pandemic had started. So we talked to each other over the phones, and uh, you know she she's grown up knowing us thank goodness because we talked to her and she's got a bar on that I made for my son and she's playing that uh, just over a year old and she <laughs> it's it's quite good. Yeah, because they're back in Ireland, you know.
1: That's magic. And um your family in Ireland are they
2: living in Waterford in that area? Yeah. Uh, They're just over the river from Waterford City in a place called Kilmacow.
1: Well, it's a fantastic part of the world. I've not been there for a long, long time, but certainly uh, like to get back myself, um, obviously after all the the pandemic travel restrictions lifted. Yeah. Now, it's funny, isn't it, Brian, that we're speaking in mid-June, because mid-June, of course, is when we used to run the floating tinnel in Oxford. And um, as well as being the person that made my ellen pipes, and I would come to for advice and reads, when I started the floating tinnel, I did it very much in conjunction with yourself. So it was a, a piping tinnel where people would come to learn the pipes and learn maintenance of the pipes and play in sessions but rather than having it in a static location we were based on a, a narrowboat that I was higher and we'd go up and down the river thames with the lessons yeah. as we cruised oh that picnic, was fun yeah picnic lunches and sessions in different pubs so um yeah. apart from my hay fever looking like i'd done several rounds with tyson fury what sort of memories have you got from the floating tinol
2: oh it's fond memories it was it was great you know I remember one time uh, we'd, we'd, had a, we'd come back to the boat, and uh, I got my bottle of whiskey and stood it on the table. And it acted like a spirit level because the bottle was tilted and the whiskey was level. And I, the only way the table couldn't be well level was if the boat was sinking. <laughs> yeah (laughs) and it was wasn't it was it I can't remember now was the boat sinking at one point yeah it oh gee somebody had flushed the toilet and the flush had carried on and we were flushing water into the boat
1: (laughs) I'd completely forgotten that you know it must have been a good night down the pub that one because I'd completely (laughs) forgotten that (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. well well spotted with the whiskey bottle I mean I was obviously very pleased being the organiser that we never actually lost a set of pipes or a person overboard either I don't think anyone ever fell in
2: (laughs) I'll tell you something we never lost a piper either no
1: (laughs) no we did have various broken down boats I do remember that I remember all sorts of things going wrong and other boats having to tow us and tying boats together. And, um, you know, even one year when the hire boat that I'd arranged, I'm convinced it wasn't my mistake. They'd they'd not sorted it out. Someone else had the boat and all you (laughs) guys were arriving. So literally I'd lived in a boat at the time. So we used my own personal boat and a friend of mine, Eddie, who's now living in India in some sort of ashram is Eddie. But my mate Eddie, we roped him in, no pun intended, and we had, um, I think, a far better time of it on our own machines. They did break down a few times.
2: Uh, I can remember you, the fan belt going on the the boat. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I remember
1: it very well because the bolt had sheared off inside the engine, which is uh, beyond my engineering skills. And luckily we were near a boatyard where a very grumpy boatyard owner, after screaming at everyone for something or nothing, managed to drill the bolt out for us. Oh, wow. Oh, we had some good times. Indeed, indeed. Well, One of the things, amazing, we've been speaking for almost an hour. I know it feels like we're just getting started. And I guess we would if we were at a session down the pub. But one of the things I was really interested to get your take on is this development of pipe making. Because we're at the stage now in 2021 when the Pia have a pipe making school you know, pi- it, it, piping itself has never been healthier. Traditional Irish music is, has never been healthier. The level of talent, the breadth of talent, the amount of young people playing it is staggering. And, you know, the f- Irish music, of course, is played all over the world. Like I now live in Bern in Switzerland, and we've got some cracking sessions here of both Irish and Swiss and English players like me. Um, you you're living in Gibraltar, where there's a session, Uh, you know, I've been to New Zealand and all over, and there's traditional music sessions. So looking back at the pre famine pipe makers that many people hold up as being the greatest, and then looking at the early and mid-20th century with giants like Leo Roussem, who again, other people will say Roussem's pipes are the best, you know, full stop. How would you look at the different eras of pipe making and what has gained and what was been lost in each one does that make sense
2: well I you know going back to what I was saying about the famine and the modern things with machinery and that not getting into piping easy everybody thought that you should have a woodworking lathe um, and where Metal turning layers are far more accurate. Um, you know, you can machine tapers on. And the big thing is, do we, If you read making and everything, if you, you've got to be able to reproduce what you've done before, um, if you can't do that, you don't know whether, you know, uh, Well, that's right. And only by changing one thing at a time when I was doing research did I find out what actually happened. So I'd got to be able to make two chanters identical, move a read from one to the other and no change, and then I'd change one of them. Do you see what I mean?
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: It's getting these ideas... Uh, of, Because nobody really writes much about the acoustics of, say, an, an oboe, which is very similar to the chanter. And everybody keeps the thing secret. You know, the makers will, you know, uh, will, they will make instruments for beginners that don't have the bores that are really good old bow does, you know and I mean what I did I just think the pipes are good enough to make everyone as good as you can make them you know um you know and this it's very difficult to I, I, I read all sorts um, and there's a Bernard a, uh, who wrote the, a book on the best book I've had on acoustics. It doesn't say where they are, It just says that perturbations do this. Do you see what I mean? And it's only when you get somebody like that recorder maker who said, well, I'd take it out here. And I thought, oh, if I did that in the same place, it either wants to be plus or minus, because the boss taper the other way. I didn't know whether it would work, but it worked. You know, what a f- first guess worked. And that kind of thing is, you know, it, it's, it's, like, it's like Reed's. I found that research, something with reeds, would be, oh, if the thumb looks flat, chop a bit off the top of the reed. And I thought, well, that will make it flatter. But, you know, you've got to make the reed longer or narrower to compensate for the thumb note. Now I find the thumb notes easiest thing to tune on the, the whole chant, because there's so many ways I can do it, you know, with the reed.
1: Well, there'll be a lot, lot of pipers out there who, um, you know, they, they find that as the hardest note to, you know, often the, the Ds are one of the hardest ones to do. And looking, you know, now, as I said, in the 21st century, do you see the type of production now with three D printing and such? Do you think that could revolutionise how iron pipes are made? Could they even be mass produced?
2: Well, the thing is that Pete, when when I first went over to Ireland, you know, people used to come and borrow me reeds, sort of playing a session, and I, you know, they bring it back, you know, and. You could that's then play my read in their chanter. You know, when people now are saying, "Oh you've got to have a read made for that chanter." And I say, no, you just make a reed that works in mine and it'll work in others. and we sell quite a lot a year uh, reads a year. I'm not going to go into the figures, but quite a lot and you know, we say, if it don't work, send it back, I'll give you your money back, but I don't have to do it because it's probably working better than anything that I've done.
1: Well, it's interesting, you're still making reeds because you have retired now from pipe making. You did a a few years ago and um, you moved from that wonderful house in Rock Street that I used to love visiting with your workshop out the back. Um, But... What would you say, you know, it's a final question. What would you say is your legacy to the world of of Ill and Piping with the work that you've done and and traditional music?
2: Oh, I don't know. Um,
1: What's here now that wasn't here uh, before you started?
2: Going back to what I said before, that one, one man's done, another man can copy, as I did. And I took information from other instruments, you know. I mean, at the moment, we're having a, you know, I, uh, we're finding that with global warming, just up the coast from where I am now in Barcelona, just beyond Barcelona near the French border, is where lots of people get their cane from Medea. And, It's growing for a a longer period. In other words, it's another month before they can harvest it because they've got to harvest it after all the sap's gone down into the rhizome, right? And then they cut it and then they send it to people like me. And I've been struggling because it's not soft enough. So I've had to find ways... Of making good reeds out of hard cane for Illum pipes, and you know, make a f- few hundred a year for people in in my little apartment.
1: <laughs> well, magic. Well, long may that continue, Brian. And um, yeah. it's been really lovely speaking to you. And I tend to find about an hour is a, a really good. Um, time you know in terms of listening for this but you know for people that have listened to this and had their interest peaked are there recordings out there where people can hear your instruments being played on
2: yeah
1: i missed that last bit um can people get recordings like cds or on spotify where they can hear your instruments being played
2: oh i am trying to write a book on how I make reeds and that would be my legacy because I've found things that nobody else has found as far as I know and uh, people are playing on reeds and they don't know I've made them which is quite good but uh, I mean I, I've just had to the, the legacy is using a solid lump of metal and trilling a bore in the same way as you would a chanter and turning the outside to get a really good staple with perturbations in it. And I've been doing it in stainless steel. So they'll live, outlive me, <laughs> you know. And I know that there's people playing. On Reeds I Made 20 years ago still.
1: Yeah, definitely. And also on uh, Very Old Whistles. I was in a, a session in Tune in Switzerland just last week, which is um, just next to the, the Tuner Sea and the Bernese Oberland, next to all the big famous mountains like the Eiger and the Jungfrau. And there was a young lad in there playing one of your very old um, brass low whistles. So the instruments are out there and the music's out there. So Brian Howard, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you very much for all of your work over the years creating instruments, you know, that people have had so much pleasure playing and it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Okay. Well, thanks for asking me.
0: lovely uh it's not often that somebody sends me a nearly finished podcast episode uh to to post so um big thanks to sean liley for just sending that stuff uh my way and also of course to mr howard um yeah this is this is great really interesting to listen to that uh the history of kind of irish pipe making um and whistle making too uh actually to go out we're actually gonna listen to some of the new howard music work so uh, brian retired in 2017 and since then uh, howard music is still going strong but under david o'hagan and recently came out with a new lodi whistle model and um, on a shared facebook group with a fellow named stephen dockery uh, who posts quite a few of uh, good tunes Um, and discussion of whistles and he recently posted a bunch of videos of uh, him playing his new low d whistle so i asked him for some tracks and he kindly sent a recording of himself playing the blarney pilgrim and joy of my life on the latest howard low d with the reed head um yeah so we're going to go out with that so thank you stephen dockery uh i've played some of stephen's tunes before he's written some some lovely stuff um and he's got you know, a good website and offers lessons on whistles and that sort of thing. So you can check the show notes out there if you'd like. Um, Also, big thank you, you know, not just Sean and uh, Brian, but uh, thanks to Finbar Fury for the use of some tunes, uh, and thanks to Black O'Connell, who insisted that Finbar wouldn't mind if I couldn't get a hold of him and if he couldn't get a hold of him asking permission, which is where we are sitting right now. So, um, Finbar, if you hear this and are upset that I use your music uh it's blackie's fault and i'm happy to take it out (laughs) so anyway and as always you can support the show by going to patreon.com waytotwag and should be back to normal episodes fairly soon here uh cheers everybody let's go out to the blarney pilgrim and joy of my life